Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Leading, with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart, and also in the background with an amazing dog called Philbert. And have you any idea, Rory, why the dog is called Philbert? Absolutely no idea why a dog would be called <laughs> Does Philbert say anything to you in, in your little no, Literally zero. World. I've never heard the name Philbert before. Philbert Street is the ground where a very well-known football team called Leicester City used to play. Oh, my goodness. Rory, have you heard of Leicester City? And here coming in is the man from Leicester City. <laughs> he did play for Leicester City. Rory has managed through canine connection to give away our guest early on. Our guest is a former footballer. And Rory, what were the clubs that I told you he played for? So uh, actually, you didn't tell me he played for them, but he did play, I believe, for Everton, for Tottenham, Barcelona and astonishingly for Nagoya, not 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 a club that I'd heard of. Okay. You must have done some research to know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he was then having been a footballer for these clubs and famously for England as a golden boot winner. Do you know what a golden boot does? What, how you get a golden boot, Roy? No, how do you get a golden boot? You don't know how you get a golden boot. Golden boot is awarded to the player who scores the most goals in a World Cup. <laughs> so he scored the most goals in the World Cup in 1986. Correct. You were at the World, the recent World Cup of Qatar. Who uh, was with with the man himself that right, we're about to interview, whose name we still haven't revealed yet won, to the audience? Who won the Golden Boot this time? I don't know. Who did win the Golden Boot this time? That would be Kylian Mbappe. The reason why some of our listeners might have guessed who our interviewee is because his voice is quite well known, and probably even more well known since he stopped being a footballer because he then went, became a, a very well known TV presenter. Hello. Hello there. We're actually in Gary's, Gary's home. So, Gary, before we get on to the kind of football and politics, can we just start back with your childhood? So you grew up in Leicester. Grew up in Leicester. Yep. And your dad did what? My dad was um, um, sold fruit on Leicester Market. How often? 
Every day or once um, a week or every day, but um, Sunday and Monday, um, he would get up at three, four in the morning, go and buy all the fruit from the wholesaler, take it to the market stall, set it all up, set it all day, market come store? home, do his do uh, his book work, and, and then fall asleep. The market stall was basically a huge table laid with fruit. It was no, it was like a square, so a square of say counters, and in the middle he stood. And I, I went, I used to go and work on. Um, holidays, Christmas, because Christmas particularly, because it was really busy for him. And I think that made me want to be a footballer because it was too much like <laughs> you know, yeah. And his, yeah. his grandfather, your, your grandfather, your great-grandfather? Yeah, it was all this family business. I used to did watch- you know that me and Alistair went to the same school? No, he was just saying. And did you remember him at school? Did you know? No, we- no, no. Was no. he not a legend for his football? Not by obviously. that stage. I hadn't played with Maradona by then. I was three years old. <laughs> the, only, the only reason you might have noticed me is because I never, ever, ever took off my Burnley scarf, ever. I once nearly got really? expelled for it. Quite rightly I so, I refused to say. take it off. But I remember Gary, because Gary was, he was already a bit of a football star and a cricket star. Cricket? I was thought I'd be a cricketer, not a footballer. Yes, yeah. but... And is yeah. it true? I was obviously I've been doing a lot of work on Wikipedia. I um, see that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, but it says that you started playing quite serious cricket about the age of eleven. Is that right? Um, I played both cricket and football. Right. Um, it was always serious to me. Um, usually competitive sportsman. You show me a sportsman that's um, not competitive. But, but I'll show is, you someone that's but, not very at, good. But at eleven, you were sort of in the Leicester, Leicester schools, County side. Yeah, yeah. Leicester. I captained Leicestershire schools right from under eleven until I left school at sixteen. I do remember there, were, there was another kid at school who mm. people thought was going to be there were one or two. The, the footballer mm. who was called Carl Jays. Yeah, I remember Carl, he was a yeah. goalkeeper. Yeah, he was a goalkeeper. He, did, he, he went to Northampton, yeah. I think. Yeah. And pro career, yeah. But I mean, I remember people thinking he was like going to be the, the one. And you, you were good. I mean, everybody knew you were a good player. But I was tiny though as a kid. Yeah. I didn't really grow. I didn't reach puberty until I was about 17. Which was You're joking. Pretty damn embarrassing in the showers. Yeah. <laughs> to hide in the corner. Yeah. I know, so I was so, and then I suddenly grew from 17 to 18, and then that's probably why my development, I was never like a child superstar. Like, you know, I wasn't a Michael Owen or a, no. a Wayne Rooney or anything like that, or Jude Bellingham. And what did you make of um, where, that time, Leicester? Did you sort of think when you were signed as a pro, did you think you'd become what you became in terms of kind of establishing the no, international? No, not at all. I dreamt of it. But to be absolutely frank, every level that I reached, I thought, Mm, this will find me out. I remember, you know, I was quite surprised they signed me in the first place um, as an apprentice, but then I, I scored goals. And then I got in the reserve team. And I, you know, you, when you play in the reserve team, you play with one or two of the players that are not in. They were kind of my, you know, players that I'd admired. Mm. And I thought, what am I doing here? Um, and, well, then, so, so and then I got in the first team and I still, but I still managed to score goals. So, but it, I'd never had that massive self-belief mm. until I was probably in my mid-twenties. Who was that team? Who was in that Leicester team then? Um, people like um, Mark Wallington was in goal. Um, we'd had like Larry May, Andy Peake, Dave Buchanan. Um, I mean, even people like... Um, Rory, what do you think of these names? I've lost Rory. He's lost his eyes there. Everyone's actually, Alistair's reminded me of this. So Jock Wallace... He's a yes. bit, bit, bit like Alistair, right? Kind of grumpy Scottish dude. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, Jock Wallace, the first time I ever met Jock Wallace... Um, was a Leicester reserve game. He just got the job. As, as the manager? Uh, yeah, as the yeah. manager, yeah, as yeah. the new manager. Yeah. I'd kind of just gotten the reserves. I was 17 at the time. And I came in to the dressing room at half time and I sat down and Jock Wallace, first time I seen him, marched in, slammed the door behind him. He was like, he was the size of Alistair, a bit bigger actually. Big, wide, yeah. Scottish, super strong Scottish accent. And um, 
And he came in and he was going, you lazy little English shite. And all this. And I thought, he's looking at me. And I thought, oh God. And then he came over and he, he quite literally picked me up by the scruff of the neck and pinned me against the dressing room wall. You fucking this and that. And I went, oh my God. I mean, I wouldn't have minded, but we were 2 0 up and I'd scored both goals. But I, I, was, I was a gibbering wreck in the second half. I was hopeless. And, it, <laughs> and, at the end, it's true. and at the end of the game, he came in again and I, went, I was trembling. I was like, oh. and he went, my office, nine o'clock in the morning. And I went, Okay, never slept a wing. I thought I was out. I thought, my end of, I thought I was it. My career was over. Um, and I, I, I got there about 8.45 and I sat outside like the naughty boy in the, waiting for the headmaster. And he came in and he went, come in, laddie, sit down. I went, okay, sat down, trembling. And he goes, I've just got something to say to you. You were magnificent last night. And I went, I beg your pardon. <laughs> sorry he went I, I just want to make sure you keep your feet on the ground and I went oh thank you very much for that you couldn't do, you couldn't do that you couldn't do that no. I mean I love Jock though I mean Jock made you know people talk about important people in your life and it's very easy to go off the rails as a young teenage lad that's done quite well in, in football um, but he made sure I didn't go out at night I'm dedicated and he just made sure I'd give myself the best possible chance to be successful but um, great but man. that management style presumably has gone out of fashion. The kind I would of think so. Scottish that, managers. Yeah, yeah. I would think so. Famous, you never got a yellow card, let alone mm. a, a red card. I find that incredible. Never tackled anyone. No, but seriously, not even to lose, yeah. lose your rag like Mitchell. I know, but it's day. not like it is now, Alistair. I mean, it, it's still it's still ridiculous, but it's not like it is. Like everyone get you. I get a yellow card now just for being in possession of large ears or something stupid. Right. But um, but in those days, um, I mean, as a forward, I used to think they had. to commit grievous bodily harm to get a yellow card, the defenders. But so it wasn't that common. I mean, people like, you know, remember Alan Smith that played at Leicester yeah, yeah. and then Arsenal and played for England. Uh, I think he only had one. In fact, I played in the game he had it. And he denies this, but I know it's true. Because the referee came over and he was, went to his pocket and he went in his Bromley accent, you're not going to give me a yellow card, are you? Do you not know my disciplinary record? <laughs> and I thought, no, he got one. So... And what was the closest you got? Closest I got was in Spain. That was a miracle. Surviving three years in Spain without a yellow card was staggering. The closest I got was when he gave a decision against me and I just laughed. He went for his pocket. I said, you're going to book me for laughing. <laughs> well, you would get booked for that sometimes. If you yeah, but I, I wasn't, you know, yeah, I suppose, yeah. But, but I was are, you, are you generally very, very mild-mannered? Yes, yes. I, I don't really have much of a temper. You're not? Not really. You, I ta- and was you always been mild-mannered? You were mild-mannered as a kid? Yeah, I was really. Like, so I was like my mother. My dad, my dad had a real temper. And my brother's got a real temper, but my mum was very calm, really calm all the time. Yeah. And tell us a bit about her. You haven't heard much. My mum. She was born in Norfolk. Um, she moved to Leicester when she was young. She was a hairdresser, um, quite glamorous. And um, I mean, both my parents. Um, I lost both of them about with four or five years ago. Um, they actually got divorced when I was about twenty twenty one, which I found really hard, but. Yeah, I could see it coming. By the time you were in your early 20s, you were seriously famous, right? Yeah. yeah. I, yeah I, and, and presumably from when did people start recognising you in the streets? Well, presumably in Leicester City, they were recognising you. Yeah, around the mid-20s, a little bit in Leicester. Then I went to Everton, started scoring a lot of goals. So I started to get well-known in England and play for the national team. But in terms of real fame, it was after the Mexico 86 World Cup. Things changed dramatically. I remember arriving home and driving up back up north and... 
and stopped at a service station and it was just swarms and it was just mm. um, incredible. How did your parents respond to that? Mate? My parents, my mum always used, oh, it's great, I love you. And all. Yeah, my dad's kind of old school. He never gave any of his emotions um, away. And I knew, I knew, and he, I, I knew he trusted me. He was the only person I think in the world that had a bet on me to win the golden boot in 1986. I think he got 16 to one. <laughs> so I won a few quid. But it, but it was the mo- one of the most poignant things that ever happened to my life was that um, when my dad was, seriously ill at the end he had lung cancer he was a massive smoker um so it wasn't a huge surprise um he was late it's kind of 78 79 and then i was going up to leicester almost every day and lots of times to see him and we had for the first time in our life we really had proper conversations and i I remember him we're talking about football and and i said you know my career's really surprised me and he went no he said he said what do you mean it's a i went well you couldn't have known that i was going to be he went I always knew. I went, you could have told me. And then one of our last conversations was really got me was he was really near the end. And it was probably the last kind of compass mentus conversation we had. And as I left, he held my hand and he went, I love you. I'd never heard him say that. No, they didn't that generation. This, you know, stoics a little bit, a bit soft that is. And I went, I love you too, dad. And I, and I went, I go out and I was in a lift. I think it was on the like seventh floor and it was just me in it and I'm sobbing, I'm sobbing. And it, it stopped at the next floor and about six nurses walked in. I was standing there, oh, are you all right? I went, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah. And did you, did you enjoy the fame? Do you have a sense I've of it? I've always enjoyed the fame, most. Have you? There are, there are downsides, but you know, yeah, people are lovely. And that's the thing. I know it's a little bit difficult and you can get... I think you can misunderstand things because of, of, of Twitter or social media where people have a go at you, but it's a very tiny percentage and they're the ones that shout the loudest, I think. So you perhaps notice them, but by and large, people are lovely. And you were one of the first uh, English players to go abroad and be successful. Mm. And one of the first as well to bother to learn the language. Well, I, when I went there, I did, I never, this is bustling. The bustling, bustling, yeah. and I, when I went there, I, I kind of looked at the players that had been successful and English players that had gone abroad and the ones that had done well, kind of the ones that immerse themselves in the culture, learn like. the language, people like Ray Wilkins and people like, um, Trevor Francis and, um, people like Kevin Keegan, Tony Woodcock, they'd all been, you know, very successful abroad, but they'd all learned the language. And I thought that it's got to be important. So as soon as I got there, I started having lessons three days, three days a week for two years. We had lessons with Michelle, then my wife. And it, and it really helped I, because, you know, you're in the dressing room, you can, you can chat, you can get the banter, you can have some fun. And yeah. in those days, were most of the players Spanish? Were most of the players Spanish? Yeah, in those yeah. days, they were only allowed two foreign players. Um, Goodness. Um, so it was, it was very different. But the manager was English? The manager, Terry Venables was the manager. He was English. Obviously, the Spanish players, well, I mean, we, we spoke Spanish. And Terry Venables spoke, his Spanish was really good, but he'd still use a lot of English and adjectives and stuff like that. So we played, um, England played against Spain in the Bernabeu in Real Madrid, Real Madrid's ground. And, and f- we've, we had to meet up on the Monday, but Bobby Robson said to me, there's no point you coming back to London, flying out with us. Why don't you fly from Barcelona to Real Madrid? So I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So, um, we flew out on the plane and I was like with six of my teammates, um, and they were all giving it, oh, you're going to get, we're going to give you a good kick, kick in and all this sort of usual stuff. So the game, the game happens. And, um, I managed to um, score four goals and we beat them 4-2, England 4 So it was great. For them. And at the end of the game, 
at the end of the game. Um, the goalkeeper that I scored four against was Andoni Zubitareta. And um, he was a great goalkeeper and a, and a wonderful lad. And I don't know where he picked this up, but he came into the dressing room at the end of the game, into our dressing room, walked over, shot me by the hand, and he went, in a perfect Cockney accent, he went, fucking hell. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I think it might have been from one of Terry Venables. Yeah, totally, totally, Terry. Yeah. And you mentioned Bobby Robson there. Mm. It's Bobby Robson, your manager. Yeah, I England. wish he was here to tour and leading. He'd have been brilliant. Oh, yeah. He would have been amazing. But, but tell us a bit about Bobby Robson, and especially that... Because another iconic moment in your career was that, and you didn't know because you didn't know what the camera angle the, the, the would Gaza be. The moment. But when Gaza yeah. realises that if you get through to the final, he's not going to be there because he just picked up the so card. This, this is 1990 against 1990, Germany. 1990, yep. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he's doing well here. He's doing well. Another tick. Yeah, it was. And there's you looking over to the bench mm. saying, keep an eye on him. What do you mean by that? Well... Obviously, because he got the yellow card, it was quite obvious that he was going to have to, you know, he would miss the final if we got through to the final. Yeah. And um, we got, we managed to, it was 1-1 in normal time. Um, and that when he got the yellow card, I was really close. And it was also really close to the bench, like 10 yards from the side of the pitch. I was really in close proximity and he hit, he did the foul. And as soon as the referee brandished the card, we all knew, of course we knew, that he was out of the final because he got two yellow cards. Yeah. So... I was still with Gaza and then his, his, his bottom lip started to go and there was a tear in his eye. So I'm thinking, I'm starting to selfish reasons in many ways. I'm thinking, we need him, you know, and he's gone here. He's like, so I'm, so I look at the bench and Bobby Robson's like there. So I've just gone like pointed to my temple or something, but yeah. have a, you know, have a word with him or keep an eye on him, whatever I said. And obviously not knowing that it would be, <laughs> it would become this event mm. that I get asked about as probably as much as anything else really? other than what my favorite flavor of crisp is. But, but Gazza actually rallied in the second half and, um, he, and uh, sorry, an extra time and, and played really well. But, um, and then, and then we had the penalty shooter. <laughs> I have to tell you this. So we, we we're in the center, you know, these penalty shooters, it's horrible. You have to wait about 10 minutes to, yeah. and I was taking the first penalty and Bobby Rossman gathered us around the four of us that volunteered and Chris Waddle. Was there only four? Well, Gazza was going to take one. Um, but he oh. wasn't, he didn't feel... Well, you'd volunteered before. Oh, kind of, yeah, volunteered he before, knew. but then you get substitutions, but then also you have to volunteer again. Yeah. But there were only four. <laughs> and um, so we were there, the five of us, and Bobby Robson goes in the middle and he went, lads, don't let me down. There are 30 million people watching this back home. Went, so... Peter Beersley and myself, we burst out laughing and said, oh, cheers. That's not, that's not the best team tour, is it? I mean, I thought no, it was a genius in no, It was funny. I was funny. They didn't mean it, but it, 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 but it didn't work. No, no. <laughs> Alas. Give us a sense of um, Spain and what mm. you thought of Spain and how the culture differed. And yeah. had you been, had you lived abroad before? And- I'd never, I'd never even contemplated living abroad before. It kind of came out of the blue. Everton called me one day, said we've accepted an offer from Barcelona. And in those days, you, you didn't have much choice about it? You could I didn't have to go, but when a club tells you that, and I kind of tell the Everton fans that sometimes, oh, you shouldn't, why well, you left us? And I got stick for ages. And in fact, one of the pluses for social media is it gave me the chance to actually explain that it wasn't quite like that. I mean, in an ideal world, I'd have stayed another couple of years at Everton because it was such a good team. It was the best team I ever played for. They were so good. We would, we'd have won loads of titles. <laughs> won nothing when I was there, um, but it was only one year. So in fact, the way we decided whether to go, and I mean, Michelle, we, they went, I said, well, they, they kind of agreed a fee to Barcelona. It's like 
one of the biggest clubs in the world. It's a huge opportunity, but I'm quite happy at Everton. I don't know what to do. And she's like, we were discussing, well, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? I don't know. Should we go? You go. And in the end, we decided it. We both got a piece of paper and we decided that we'd write yes or no on the piece of paper and put it in a thing. And we, then we'd open them both up. Well, what Joking. happened to one was yes and one was no? It's a good question that will never need to be answered because <laughs> they both said yes. Wow. But so, yeah, I don't know. I, I suppose I'd have said, is that you saying yes or me saying yes? It's not exactly sort of high-level data and analytics. This, not really, was it? <laughs> no, but it's true. So you arrived in Spain and mm. were you aware of Catalonia and the tendency of Catalans oh, really? and so I didn't know the history. You learn it very quickly. You know, obviously it was not that long really after Franco's um, and there was very much that feeling. They used to talk to me, that, you know, they that thing called, the, you know, Los Cules and Mesquén Club. They, is Barcelona, yeah. which is more than more yeah. than a football club, yeah. and they they say that because during Branco, you know, the only place they could really speak their language, they felt, was inside the new Camp. So therefore, In, Barcelona's the team yeah. became kind of this really important thing against Franco Spain, which was seen as Real Madrid. Mm. So that's where this classico. Um, real rivalry comes from it's kind of more than a football match more than a club so, so is there a sense in which that experience politicised did you think I think I, I think that's the kind of an age I started to, I was always interested in politics my dad was my, my, my dad was a real Thatcherite I was a real Tory um, so you could because, kind of influence and, and, that way and how did he think about it he's a small businessman and he's a small businessman yeah, you know yeah. and that was that was the thing and you mentioned Michelle a couple of times who you married yep and I guess another defining moment must have been when George, your son, mm. became ill. That's actually, I don't even remember, that's the first time I got to know you after school was when, because I was doing fundraising for leukaemia uh, research as yes. was. But just tell us a little bit about that. because uh, Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it was tough. It was our first child, George. He was about six weeks old and he developed this like kind of bump on his head, like a spot, but it was hard. So I thought, this is odd. We'll get it checked. So we took him to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, it looks like kind of some skin condition. I can't remember the name of a ridiculously long word. And he said, we'll take a tiny biopsy and we'll get back to you in about 10 days. And then within those 10 days, he started developing more of these bumps. And then they were on the top of his head everywhere. And he was pretty bold as a baby. And they were quite hard. His head was like a golf ball. It's really weird. Um, and we went back and... We, we saw these, there were two doctors there waiting and we walked in. And is this in Spain? or in No, it's here. Yeah. No, this yeah. is, um, yeah. this was Tottenham. after. We after. didn't have kids until I was back at Tottenham. So it was in, George was born in 91. Um, so it was the end of 91 because it was just a few weeks later. So we went back to the, see the doctors and they said, well, it's come back as this skin condition. We thought it might be. So I thought, oh, that's what a relief. So I started to worry. Um, and I said, well, just one thing I said, I know you say that I said, but also I said in, in the last 10 days, he, he really seems to be unwell and he's been groaning and he's had way more of these things on his head. And, and they went, Oh really? And I went, yeah, his glands seem to be up the So they took his outfit off, took his nappy off. And then I'll never forget it. They just looked at each other, the two of them. They went, I'm really sorry. This is something much more important than that. Much more serious. I went, what do you mean? They went, Oh, we need to do blood tests. We need to check first, but this does look like leukemia. And that was a word that was like, I knew, I knew it was some kind of blood cancer. I didn't know much about it. And it was like, Oh, and within half an hour on our way to great Ormond street. And then we kind of been there for seven months. Um, and two or three times they told us it's very unlikely to make it through the night. Um, but somehow he did. 
Uh, it, and it was, you know, Michelle was there for seven months by, you know, in a bed by his side. There was only one small bed. So I, I used, went home. I didn't play for about three weeks and then I went back to football training and then I started playing, which was actually the best thing because it was the only time I could switch off from it. But he got into remission. He got the all clear and then you go home and you just hope it doesn't come back. And, and he's now 31. And does he remember any of this? No, nothing. He was a small baby, tiny, nothing. Tiny but he's, baby. you know, he now does quite a lot for you know leukemia charities and stuff like that. What were the media like at that time? I can remember it being a big story. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, a great answer. The first night I went home, Michelle stayed with him. It was about three in the morning. I came home. I told the club. Terry Venables said, "I'll come and pick you up in the morning, and I'll take you to the hospital." He was brilliant. And when he did, he picked me up. And I came out of my house and there must have been, it was, it was like last week, the week or two ago, yeah. I was about 50, about 50 journalists out there and cameras and stuff. So somehow they, you know, things leak and they were outside the hospital every time I came out and every time I went in and every time I came out, it was difficult. The response from the public was extraordinary. I used to get a, like a huge bin bag, they used to bin full of letters every week would come into the hospital and it took me two years to reply to them all. But I thought I should because it was it was so moving what they you know the, the amount of support that we had. But it's interesting because you, like I always think about we've talked before about this whole thing about footballers have got to be role models and which I don't buy at all because I mean you young men who no. because you're good at football become very very famous yeah. and very well known and suddenly something happens in your private life and you consider I know absolute I, I, fair sort game. Of, I sort of understand it though um, with matters of massive interest in, with fame it's part of part of it. Um, I, I, I didn't, it didn't bother me that much. No, no because I, you know, I was playing for England at the time. Um, you know, I played in world cups. I understand the public interest and they, they weren't, you know, they were all kind. No, it wasn't like anyone was nasty. They were just doing their jobs. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't mind that too much. The role model thing with young footballers, you, you know, s- some will choose to use it. Some will choose not to. I think I've been really proud of, of some of our young footballers in recent years mm-hmm. you know over the pandemic with captains getting together raising money for you know the nhs with marcus rashford um he shouldn't have had to do what he did but he did and he did it wonderfully it turned government policy um so you know it, with with racism issues you know the likes of raheem sterling and, and and many others i think they've done themselves proud and mm. sometimes you forget how young they are yeah, exactly and, exactly. you know, and the way they do their post-match interviews, how multilingual a lot of them are, mm. particularly, you know, obviously the players from abroad when they mm. come here. So I'm proud of my sport and proud of um, the young footballers particularly. Gary, I mean, in some ways you were, I mean, you worked unbelievably hard, but you were also on the fortunate end of things. I mean, mm. you, as you say, you continue to perform better than you were expecting to. Your your father believed in you, <laughs> but, but you maybe didn't think that when you were 14, 15, you were going to become one of the most famous footballers in the world. So. How about young men who dedicate themselves to this and don't quite make it? I, mm. I, and the reason I'm thinking about this, I, I did a bit of work with, um, with David Dean around prisons and with Arsene Wenger. And I remember Arsene Wenger saying that he was very, very concerned about young French players who put so much heart mm. and soul into making it, didn't quite didn't make quite it. Have, and, he, yeah. and he pointed out that actually some of the terrorist attacks in France have been conducted by young men who'd been almost made it as professional footballers. Oh, really? Made it. Yeah. And he really believes that, you know, we need to rethink the whole youth academy stuff and 
keep people in school longer so they have alternatives. Mm. I, I, I think he's right. They have changed a lot, the academies now. They do offer um, education well into um, late teens um, for young footballers. Um, so, you know, even if you go and you think you've got a chance, they carry on that education within the academy. Um, but, I mean, it's brutal. It's, I mean, nearly every young kid now, not just boys, but often girls now as well, want to be professional footballers and there are so few spaces. I mean, one of my boys played at Chelsea's Academy for a few years. I used to go on there and look around the pitches, every age group. There must have been hundreds and hundreds of kids there. And you know, out of all those hundreds, couple might get to the top, couple might get a lower league career somewhere and the rest won't, but they all think they're going to make it. So it's so hard. How did you work that through with your son? I think with my children, I think it's important to know that they, you know, they're, they're very fortunate, they're in a good position. They, you know, he's, if he's not going to be a footballer, he'd kind of be probably all right in life because his his dad's done okay. Um, it's it, I think it's more for those that the dream is to get out of somewhere, out of poverty, out of what, and the reliance and the parents get keen and they, you know, they think they're going to go and then the disappointment happens. Um, so I think for my boys, it was fine. I don't, I just conversations with them. I, you know, I used to say to them, it's really, really difficult. Just play and enjoy it. That's all that matters. You'll reach your level. You'll reach the level that you got as long as you try hard, as long as you have fun. Um, and you, you'll reach your level. And that, I would say that to any parent, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't get ahead of yourself. It's so hard, so competitive. And that's why people, I, you know, when I hear fans and stuff talking or, or even, you know, people on radio call-ins and, and they lambast players. He's useless. He's rubbish. And I just think you have no idea how good you have to be just to be a professional. Mm. You know, you can see it in sports like golf and I'm quite envious because we all know like you, you can compare yourself to the same course. You can see hit the same shots. Whereas in football, you tend to end up just playing at the level you play at. And one thing I always say to you know, people and parents are the ones that are really critical of professional footballers. I said, hang on a minute. Can you remember someone at school that used to think he was unbelievable, but he never quite made it. He never. And I go, that's how hard it is. Mm. Remember that when you, when you lambast these professional players, they are way better than you think. Even the Burnley ones. Oh, <laughs> that, is, that is a low, low, it was low, just a joke, low, 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 low blow. Um, do you do you resent at all the fact that I mean you've made a good living out of football, mm. but you, in a way you've made a better living out of broadcasting? Um, yeah, well, but yeah. So, so when well, you look at this players, you look at players today. Mm. A lot of whom, like even in way below the Premier League, will be earning the sort of money you couldn't even dream of when you were a player. Yeah, is that doesn't? No, I mean I'm fine. I'm fine. I've done obviously I've done really well. Why would I, what I would have moaned? But I would imagine there are a lot of players in my generation who'd wish they'd been born. 15, 20 years later. But for listeners who don't follow mm. this all the time, it's gone from you earning £300,000 a year to people earning £300,000 a week, right? Absolutely right. I, was, I think I was one of the top played players in the world when I was at um, Barcelona and again when I rejoined Tottenham. Um, and so, but... And, and that, that was a few yeah, hundred thousand that, pounds that a year. Just over about 330, I think it was, something like that, which was, it felt like an enormous amount of money at the time. And it is, obviously it is, mm. um, and was. But, you know, the... the the chart since the Premier League started has just gone, whoo, the graph has gone, escalated rapidly. Um, and, and, and good luck to them. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it is. And, you know, you, you can't really control it because the best players will be sought after. You end up with, it's almost like an auction. How do you feel about the, the way that football clubs are now 
part of this kind of bigger geostrategic, geopolitical stuff? Well, it worries me a little bit. I, particularly, I, I have a real problem with state-owned football clubs, even if they're disguised not as that. Um, but I'm afraid that's the, that train has left the station and we're stuck with it. Um, so in some ways, it's, it's given us the biggest, most professional most exciting league in the world um, because of we, we're now attracting the big players from all over the world, whereas we never really did that before. The big players would always go, and they still do to a degree, go to Barcelona and Real Madrid, um, or they used to go to Italy. But nowadays, of course, most of them come here. Where even you know, likes of Haaland, for example, he would never have come to English football um, twenty years ago, even ten years ago. Dad did, but. His dad did, but his dad wasn't anywhere near as good as his lad. So one of the things we talked about on the show before is um, German model, mm. an idea of yep. clubs which are mostly owned by the fans, where you have mm. real control, you don't maybe have as much money. I mean, it's too late for us now. I think it's too late for that. Um, but I do admire the German model and they kept their prices down, their ticketing, which I think we should do anyway. I mean, we get so much money from television and TV rights. You know, we, the important thing is to keep the grounds full because the product, even on television, is nothing like as good if you don't. Alistair's told me a lot about his playing football with Maradona. Mm. That was a big, big moment in his life. What game was that, Alistair, exactly? It was the first soccer aid. And do you know what my team was, Gary? Go on then. Michael in goal, Dunga, SAE, Mateus, me, Campbell, Maradona, Zola, <laughs> Ginola. Well, oh. give, give us a sense of Maradona. What... It's really, it's very similar to when I watch Messi. They do things that, you know, I played obviously high level and there are players way better than me, you know, like loads, like unbelievable, like Gaza and people with that kind of talent, and Zico and Platini and, you know, all these wonderfully, wonderful players. But then above them, Zidane, all these people, but above them, you've got Messi and Maradona who play a game that, the rest of us are not familiar. They see things almost as though they're above themselves, watching down on themselves. And they could get out of any situation. They could beat people. They could they manipulate the ball like they were using the hand. And that's not meant as a pun for yeah. the hand of God. I did two documentaries. I did one where I was in his company for three days. It was the most extraordinary three days imaginable. His life was completely nuts. Everywhere he went, there was huge entourages of people bowing. He was I spent three days in, in Buenos Aires and it was nuts. I just think, no wonder he's mad. No wonder he's got that other side to him. That he, and, and you can what, see what it. What was he like? Give us a bit of a sense of his personality off the pitch. Lovely. Lovely. Really fun, engaging. Love people. Um, sense of humour. Mm. And you don't feel a huge sort of rage or a sense about that 86 I moment? don't. One or two of my teammates do. Pete Shilton, Terry Butcher, they'll never forgive him. And they say it to this day, I, 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 I was different. I, he just did something, got away with it. If it had been one of ours, we'd have been, you know. You'd have done the same, wouldn't you? I wouldn't have ever thought to do the same. And it was so like, almost brilliant the way, the way he did it. He just his head just, a little bit bigger, wouldn't he? Well, yeah. But I didn't, it wouldn't have crossed my mind. Otherwise, I might punch the one in with five minutes to go near the end for the equaliser. Yeah. But it's not something that I've, you would ever think about doing. But there's no question in my mind he must have, done that once or twice before because oh, yeah. it was so but and then of course after that he scores the greatest goal of all time you were you were sort of the other end weren't you goal hanging I didn't see the hand of goal I couldn't see it when he did score the second goal though, I honestly felt like I ought to applaud really not that I would because no. you'd get hammered home but it was that good yeah, and I just really thought good. oh my god how did you, what, what have I just seen they just ran on a pitch that was almost unplayable it was like yeah. cabbage patch yeah. 
Gary and Alistair, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a second. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. Me, Alistair Campbell, and our guest, Gary Lineker. I last saw you in Qatar. You, you were pleasantly surprised. You, when I saw you, you were quite cheered up by the whole thing. You thought it was quite an enjoyable experience. You liked being able to get between the there games because they were, were close together. There were together. pros and cons to it, um, I felt. It didn't really surprise me. I knew the football would be good because football is, is in a World Cup. It's done, but, and, and some of the games were, were fantastic. The stadiums were beautiful, as you'd expect when you've spent 200-odd billion. Um, but it was, um, it was kind of strange. There was no kind of social, you know, there were a few restaurants that were kind of pop-ups really and they're all in a line in the same place you know the usual suspects um but you could get to a lot of matches that was the big bonus for us um and that's a purely selfish thing because you could actually normally we'd we'd park ourselves in a studio say russia for example in middle of red square and and have a nice view but never sit but watch a football match on the telly whereas there we actually went to every game that we covered and that was that was a massive that was a massive bonus Mm. The crowds, it was a little bit surreal. Um, it wasn't kind of a normal football crowd, but there were positives to that as well. Quite, quite there was a no trouble. Crowd. There was no trouble. Very yeah. diverse. Yeah. Um, lots of people I, I met from um, countries in Asia and, um, and and various other spots in North Africa, particularly. There was so you know there were there were pros. So you were in sport. You're a footballer, and then you became a broadcaster. I've never really understood how a sportsman can to broadcasting afterwards. It always feels like such second best to me. Well, you can't play any longer and it's his second best. Of course it's second best. But what else can, you know, what else, there's no, there's nothing that you can do that would be on the same so level. You, but you'd accept that, that, that it is second best. Oh yeah, I had this real, really interesting conversation with Michael Owen about the feeling of scoring a great goal and he trains horses and I said to him, is that, do you, is he, I mean, is it the same when your horse wins? He went, it's still not the same. <laughs> there's nothing that compares with scoring a big goal in a big game mm. or winning a massive match. So a lot of players really, really struggle when they stop. Loads of players, and obviously, you know, it's it's really. I've been I've been lucky. I found something else I could do. Um, but there are so many jobs in television. There are only so many managerial coaching roles. 
And after that, so many players have a difficult time. You know, they're only so much now if the, the top ones, if they're sensible enough, that might be okay. But you know what it's like. The more you earn, the more you spend generally. So I don't know. It, I, there's some crazy um, um, statistic about footballers getting divorced. Oh, yeah, it's uh, huge. Uh, from the age, I think, from 35 yeah. to 40. It's like 70% addiction. All sorts of problems. You know, the fame goes, the money stops. But did you never fancy being a coach or a manager? No. Because you just need because I don't think I'd, I'd I'd be very good at it. Why not? Because I'm not a leader, you, and I don't know why I'm on this show. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got you got Jock Wallace in your head. You got Jock Wallace in your head. You're not an angry Scott. That's no, I'm not. I know. I oh, you've lost your sense. You know. But I, I just I looked at TV. I was really into. I used to write match reports when I was a kid. Yeah. I used to go to. I used to stuff. do that. Did you still? I used well. to draw pictures of Charlie yeah. Hurley with his red and white stripes. Yeah, you're, you're older than me. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I used to do that, and then. They used to call me Junior Des in the England team, like after Des Line, and maybe because I was starting to show a bit of a few greys, but I was interested. I used to sit with the the journalists when they were writing their match reports to see how they did it. I used to sit by radio. I just thought to myself as well, in fact, I want to go into football because it was kind of just becoming a thing back then, TV. Mm. And, and I, I used to look at other sports and I used to think like Sue Barker and David Gower, for example, they were presenters of their sports, cricket, tennis. And I thought, well, football's not really got that. Jimmy Hill did it occasionally, um, and Bob Wilson did it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, if I can crack the presenting side, it might give me some kind of longevity in the business. Yeah, well, it has. And it, well, it, and it, and it so proved to be, but it, it was hard at the what, start. What did you have to learn about it? What 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 didn't come naturally? What what was what was everything? The I said I said I was you know I was kind of born to be in the box, not on the box. You know, I'd done a lot. Of, I did punditry for a start, which wasn't that difficult. I was just give my opinion when asked a question. Presenting a show is a whole different ball game. What's the difference in the two? The massive we're kind difference, of pundits, aren't we? Well, you are, but you don't really have to. It's not. This is not live, for example. So you don't. You've not got to like hit the end of the show and hit a countdown. You, you've got to get into the next link whenever that is. So you've got to go from chat to actually then doing a link into like a, a feature or a link into the match. And all the time you've, you've got, got to hit certain times, talking, your ear. talking in your ear constant, not yeah. constantly, yeah. but sometimes, but you're hearing, I like open talk back because I like to know what's going on everywhere. Some people just have switch. The difference is switch is just the information you need to hear. Yeah. But open talk back means everything. So I hear them talking to the camera. I hear them talking to so. But and I like that. But and you can hear them talking down and yeah, sharing. Yeah, I was giving these big ears for a reason. I can, <laughs> I can I can listen. I can listen and talk. But it took me eight. The first two years I did football when I started presenting. I did football focus. I used to drive home at lunchtime on a Saturday after the show. And so many times I thought I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never. But it wasn't quite bad enough for them to get rid of me. And then I became comfortable in the environment. I knew how it worked. And I knew how to look at a camera. And I knew how to deliver a thing. And what about your little bombo? Your little sort of quips and all that? I, I mean, do that, but that's fine. You're all of it. But you know what happened, though? You know, Alistair McGowan, right? He used yeah. to do a... Sh- I mean, Alistair's the only one that does me. No, really? He, but he does me... Co- and, um, and he used to have a show that went out on a Saturday night just before match of the day, before the news. Then there was a, we used to watch it because that's that period when I wasn't, where we kind of spare time. And I used to wa- watch him doing the show. He'd do all these mannerisms, you know, this, and the little <laughs> kind of half swallow I used to do. And I used to go on the show and then I, you I think that's the thing that Alistair McGowan just did. I just actually did it. And I got so self conscious that I stopped watching his show before it was on. It, wow. Because it was putting me off. <laughs> yeah. but, you, but you, and I guess we should come to, to where we've just been, as it were, with the, the little recent controversy. The elephant in the room. No, it's not the elephant <laughs> in the room at all, no. Uh, but it's interesting how that, 
what that said about. I mean, first of all, give us your take on why you think it became such a big thing. I, I, I'm, I'm still bewildered. Do you, still, do you still find it a bit odd? I think it was so what disproportionate. Was, what was your experience of it? Talk us through how it, how it yeah. happened. Well, I, there was the policy, which I, you know, I, which I kind of, when they spelled it out, I thought, oh, come on, you can send people to a country perhaps where they don't want to go. That seems... And I thought, this, I don't think this is going to work. Is it even going to be legal? Obviously, we all recognise there's a massive problem. Um, but, you know, it's going to get worse as well with climate change and stuff like that. And people fleeing their countries. Um, and I just thought, come on, you know. And then somebody replied. It was quite an aggressive response. And I, all I did was reply to them. And I, mm. at the end of it, I, you know, I added the, the line. It's, you know, some of the language used is not dissimilar to that used in the early 30s in Germany. Which was never meant so as any was, kind of comparison so with the just, Holocaust just, just or anything like that. This was a reply on Twitter. It was just a reply. You, you get, you're getting so in a debate with yeah, someone on you're Twitter. Basically, you're basically facing Doing what I never do either. Right. But you're, I only saw it because someone else that I follow replied to it. So therefore I saw it. And I, for some reason, I responded. You replied, and then presumably lots of likes and retweets uh, began to people. Well, I began to get it noticed, but I went to bed. I never, I didn't know what was going on. And <laughs> I, I woke up the following morning. And you know, like when you wake up, I, I don't have, look at my phone until I've had a coffee because I don't function until I've had a coffee in the morning. So, so I came down the kitchen and I, and I had my coffee, drinking my coffee, I put my phone on. You know, like in the morning, I don't know about you, but I get, you know, like five WhatsApp messages or sometimes if the boys are chatting amongst themselves in our group chat, it might go up to 20, 30 maybe. So I wake up in the morning, looked at my phone, it's got, 237 WhatsApp messages. I've gone, oh my God, what's happened? And I've really, I'd really worried thoughts for a few seconds. I thought, because I couldn't think of what it could possibly be. And I thought it's either some kind of scandal or, or something happened to one of my kids or, and I, I remember, and I opened it and the first message I saw was somebody showing me the, the, the Daily Mail's front page, which obviously caused all this Ferrari, um, linking me to the, to the Nazis. And I just went, oh, thank God for that. That's all it is. That's all it is. I don't, I, you know, I don't mind that. It didn't bother me. I was okay. And it just, it kind of just spiraled kind of sillily out of control. But it was obviously speaking to something that's going on deep. This is why I yeah. sort of weighed in because I, I think it was speaking to something really odd, which is that the right go on the whole time about free speech, but it has to be the speech that they want heard. Well, that's, that was kind of my first thing was really, hang on a minute. Hang on. This is, you know, I've not, I've not been abusive to anyone. I've not, you know, I've not. Um, said anything particularly controversial. I think it was factual. I think I, you know, I, I'm not saying at all that our policies echo those of, of Germany or anything like that. But sometimes, which I said, sometimes some of the language oh, yeah, is sure. not dissimilar. We use words like you know invasion and Swarm. and swarms and, and criminals yeah. and rapists and all these things. Yeah. Um, and it, and that could lead to something. It might not lead to something. But I've been an advocate of you know I've done a lot with charities and stuff and like with the refugee crisis for a long time. And it's kind of what. And when I went when I met. Tim Davey, when he first brought in his guidelines things, we had a discussion. And I said to Tim, there are two things that I will continue to talk up on. I will not back down on. And he agreed. One of them was about the refugee crisis and the other one was about climate change. Um, so I, I, for me, this, I put this in that category. Now, obviously, all these things will be linked to politics. Pretty much everything is. It's like when people say sport and politics shouldn't mix. They always mix. You can't, they can't not do. So... All my argument here was this, that let's have some empathy towards these poor people that are forced to flee 
persecution and war. Do you think if it happened here, for example, if we suddenly, for some inexplicable reason, mm. we were attacked and we had to flee, mm. flee somewhere, at least show some empathy, some kind words, even if we obviously can't have everyone here. We all know that. I like your idea. I've heard it many times on, yep. on here where yep. it's, you know, towns have a percentage yep. and we could do yeah, that. Because just have our fair yeah, share. I have a go at, at Alistair on this issue because he's going around wearing T-shirts saying open borders at the moment. No, I'm right. not. No, it's not. No, I'm not. What did it say there? My T-shirt. You're lying. You see, What's that's a typical story. Think without says, borders. It's people, not boats. No, I think it's an important point because yeah, I, there, is, there is a part mm. of the left that very, very, very mm-hmm. unrealistically genuinely believes in open borders. There's a big movement, and it may not be something that you believe. No, I don't at all. I think the pro- what happened here is because of the Daily Mail front page, which was nothing like what I said. It was saying we're you know, comparing our policy to that of the Nazis. Mm. That was not the case. It was not the case. I was just talking about some of the language. You know, would I do it differently now? Probably after the oh, flurry yeah. that it's caused. But I stick by those words, yeah. and I think it's true and factual. So I don't think that impartiality comes into it. It's post-truth, because basically mm. you say something and then they say you've said, Su- Suala Brabham is a Nazi, yeah. which you never said. Well, they, they've got massive retain up all proportion. It is something, though, that's really weird about newspapers. I mean, whenever I got caught up in a political thing, mm. terrible thing to say, but in 2010 I said some parts of northern part of my constituency are pretty primitive, right? The Mirror ran a headline, Tory MP calls his constituents primitive. When something like this happens, and I totally you know, sympathise with that because these things happen all the time. But, and even to people that write the pieces, sometimes the headline bears, it's a totally different thing to watch the story they're trying to tell. But it's like, but people only see the headline and that's all they see in the supermarkets when they go and see all the paper. Oh, look at that. Oh, blimey. Did it cross your mind when you did the the, the reply to the guy that, did you think, I wonder if this is within the guidelines or was it never in doubt for you no it was never no i never never contemplated it would be an issue at all so then so then you got the question about how the bbc got itself into a state where mm. it, it became like a full-blown crisis for a couple of days yeah they, i mean it's silly but it shouldn't have been and i'm a massive you know i love the bbc i've been there for nearly 30 years um but people you know people make mistakes but they recognize that and they addressed it and in the end Thankfully, we're all, you know, back to work. Well, it was pretty okay. amazing, wasn't it? The, I mean, the outpouring of support was unbelievable. It, was, uh, it really was. And, and, it was beautiful. And, I mean, Alice was very active in this too, but one of the things that you pointed out in terms of crisis management is knowing how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And what became clear as everybody began boycotting Match of the Day and nothing was going on, that this was not going to end well. Yeah. My but, teammates, um, it, yeah. it, it, was, it was funny. I was in, in a restaurant then in the back of the car. And firstly, when Ian Wright, pulled out of the show. And then when Alan did as well, Alan Shearer, I, I must admit, I, I, did, I had a tear in my eye. Did they not tell you they were going to do it? Ian Wright, when it first happened, said, why is this an issue? If they do anything, I'm, you know, I'm not going on. And I, you know, it's one thing saying that in, yeah. a, in a moment, but yeah. then actually to carry that through, they didn't need to do that. And I then, thought then, the then, then Alex Scott and then Jermaine Genus and Micah and then, and then all the commentators and mm. then the match reporters and then the, <laughs> even the footballers said they weren't going to do any. And it was like, my goodness, this is, this is kind of not doing it. I think they're doing it for more for the cause, but they actually, you know, to get that kind of mm. team spirit, that kind of camaraderie and togetherness, I mean, it just moved me. Mm. It was just, it was just. It was beautiful. Can I play my, my classic role as the, um, yes, as the, as the kind of, I've, I've, missed, I've been waiting for it. Pseudo Tory. So, um, 
and I'd love pseudo Tory. I'd, I'd love to <laughs> love to get you thinking a little bit mm. off your own case. I mean, let's not get caught up in a mm. case onto the, the 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 issue of impartiality. So this was mm. a quote from Chris Bryant, the Ronda MP, yep. right? when a BBC presenter, Win Evans, hosted a Tory event. He said, "It's really simple. He's paid for by the license fee, public service broadcaster." He should keep his political views to himself. Otherwise, he should be sacked or resign. He's a regular presenter on the BBC Wales show. It's absolutely basic. What do you think about that? Yeah, but what does he do? Gary's a sports presenter. Do? I don't know what he does. If it's news well, and current affairs, yeah, I think that's... And they're a, sta- a member of staff at the BBC. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if you're a freelance guy that, like me that works on football... So, so let's, let's, no, let's move... I don't on. believe... But so at the moment, let's, they're let's trying move, to spread let's it Let's move off you there. Yeah. And back to the, the mm-hmm. basic issue of impartiality. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. I think, for me, what they have to think about, first and foremost, before you talk about anybody else's impartiality, the government of the day, whoever that is, whether it's Tory or Labour, cannot decide who the chairman of the BBC is oh, or, totally. or have any kind of influence on who they put in to, to be director of news or anything else. That, for me, is where it needs to start. So otherwise, it's, it's really difficult. Are you, have, have you ever thought about tweeting something or saying something public and then not done it yes. because you've thought? lots of times. Go on, then. I have three rules. Go on. One, I don't tweet when I've had a drink. I don't tweet when I'm angry, but I'm very, very rarely angry anyway. And the third one is every tweet that I do, I read it to myself back. And if I have 1% doubt, I don't send it. Right. Which happens quite a lot. And sometimes they're really good jokes and it annoys me. Or I think they're really good jokes. No one else does. <laughs> so, and, and, and have you thought about, you know, because the other thing that it's done is because it's been such a big controversy is that you've, mm. you've now got a strong political voice if you want to. <laughs> if I want to. I'm not, and that, you know, that's the thing. I'm not, I mean, I'm really interested in politics. This is one of my favourite. This is my favourite podcast. It all goes back to the school. You yeah, see, yeah, the same yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. Grammar school. Grammar right? school, you insist. He I keeps insisting it's a comprehensive. It's comprehensive. The grammar school. It's a grammar school. There we go. You see, can't believe what he says. No, the term. It's because I went midterm. I went from uh, maybe. I went from Bradford Grammar School. (laughs) The truth is out. Can I tell you how I know? Let me tell you how I know because this is quite. It's a crazy story, really. Because I lived. I lived in a place called. Braunston, yeah, or um, next to it, yeah. Brownie Fields, and until I was ten, and then we moved. But we, I'd just taken the eleven plus. I passed the eleven plus, but we moved into the county. We're slightly out Kirby Muxlow, mm-hmm. so there was only one choice of school for me to go to under those circumstances because in the county, but it was a non-football playing school. My dad said, I cannot do that to you. Ugh. It's a rugby playing school. So he said, right, we'll move back into the city. We were in that house for one year. My de- I, in, and for six months, I went to live with my grandparents because they lived in the city so that I could go to the school that plays football. So I went through my entire senior <laughs> school career. It wasn't the grammar school. It was called City. It was one of the first wave of comprehensives under Shirley Williams. They were. It was a grammar school. It was a grammar school. Actually, I, I do know. It was definitely. I, I it changed. It changed later. Yeah. Now listen, just back finally to the politics. What's the most political thing you're going to say between now and a general election? <laughs> I won't get involved. I've never said who I vote for ever. I've voted for lots of different parties at different points for different reasons. Um, I'm kind of your archetypal floating voter, to be honest. Um, I'm not kind of you tribal did a famous, in that sense. famous centrist tweet, didn't you? I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm centrist, yeah, yeah. centre forward. Yeah, yeah. centre forward all my life. And, yeah. um, you know, from, you know, 
people say, oh, you the lefties and all this. I'm not particularly a lefty. I'm not, I'm certainly not from the right. And I think I probably drift from centre to left a little bit centre. Good. Well, thank you for having us in your lovely home. Thank you for being so open and frank. And thank you for helping Rory learn a bit more about football. Thank you. And thank you above all for the amazing newsworthy revelation that Alistair Campbell went to a grammar school. There you go. Jackpot. <laughs> that was fascinating. Have you known him for a long time? Well, I knew him at school, but didn't know him, as it were. Knew of him. Then got to know him a bit when through leukaemia research, because my best friend died of leukaemia and his daughter died of leukaemia. And then more, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't talk. I forgot about the... We did once have a bit of a Barney on a golf course. I don't play golf anymore, but I was on a golf course playing golf with Jamie Redknapp. Let's stick with the football. And it was during one of the World Cups when being a sort of bit of a rabid Scotland fan, and Scotland, needless to say, weren't there. And I wrote a piece of the Times about how I couldn't stand the BBC's coverage of the World Cup because it was so Anglophobic, Anglo-centric and all about England. And... uh, and it wasn't that bad a piece, but anyway, Gary was really pissed off with it and he, he, let, he let it be known. I don't know, really. I've just sort of got to know him more recently. And then, of course, during the People's Vote campaign. People's Vote campaign. And, uh, but I do think he's, a, he's an amazing bloke because he was, you know, joking about your football non-knowledge aside, he was a really, really, really good footballer. And the reason why our podcast is produced by a company called Goalhanger is that is kind of, he, he was the tap-in king. But he was the reason he got all those goals out is because he was just always in the right place. And it was also, I do think the red, I think he was playing down the red card, yellow card thing. I think he's got that sort of very calm equilibrium about him that even in those high pressure moments, he didn't lose it. And do you, I mean, do you, because you adore football, was there a time in your life when you were a bit starstruck when you met great footballers who you'd seen on television? Oh, when I was a kid, yeah. Not, no, the only time I've genuinely been starstruck by a footballer was Maradona. And because he became my best mate within a week, it was like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I got over that quite quickly. I think when you're in the presence of people that you think are genius, it's always, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. But no, no and, and Gary was, you know, but Gary was a really, really, really good footballer. I also do think, this is why the BBC were daft to sort of get into the mess over it that they did. I do think he's a brilliant broadcaster, which very few sports and that's, people And that's are. partly because he's quite funny, isn't he? As you yeah. say, he's good at the quips, he's good at the one-liner, mm. presents very well. Self-deprecating. Yeah. Self-deprecating, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that good grammar school education, isn't it? Set him up well. Well, Rory, I'm going to check this because, I mean, honestly, I just I can't get this. Maybe because I went there in the middle of the term. So the, because you already passed the 11 plus for the Bradford Grammar School, they let you in, didn't they? Is the 11 plus? I think it might be worse than that, Rory. I think it might have been a specific grammar school, <laughs> Bradford Grammar School entrance. I didn't realise that as a kid, you'd walk around all the time at school with a Burnley scarf mm. on. Were you kind of slightly weird kid? No, I think it was weird. I was very, I think my obsession with Burnley is part, was partly born in Leicester because I, as a kid, as a child, young child, I used to go to home games. I never even thought of going to an away game. And then because of this accident to my dad and we got moved to Leicester, I just, the, the need to keep going back. I think it was just feeling I was wrenched out of where I was really from. And so I literally never, ever took the Burnley, apart from PE, I never took my Burnley scarf. You're sort of symbolising to everyone in Leicester that you just didn't belong. You didn't, didn't want to belong. be there. I didn't yeah. belong, yeah. and I'm not. I'm never going to belong. And I wore. A, we had a, a school uniform that was sort of dark blazer. I wore a blue anorak and a Burnley scarf all the time. And I remember once in a heat wave, sitting in a German lesson with Mr. Webster, and he was always saying, "Can't you take your coat off? Can't you take your scarf off? No, I'm not taking it off ever." 
Um, you, you were a bit of a weird kid, right? No, I was. I was determined not to take my Burnley scarf. I was determined, but they knew I do not come from here. I come from somewhere else. I'm happy to be with you, but I'm not taking my scarf off. And but I remember sitting there, and it was an absolute heat wave. It was one of the hottest summers ever, and I wouldn't take it off. Well, I think on that heroic note, we sh- we should end our pod. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.